0: you're listening to the second episode of season four of the wicked podcast i'm mike moore this podcast is about songs written for or to or about women mostly it's about how hard it is for a pair of human beings to form a healthy lasting connection especially if their emotional and social development were messed around with by a strict isolationist rules and shame-based upbringing in their formative years it's also about depression words and music Each episode is me ruminating around a song from my album, Spurned, which is an old word that means rebuffed, turned away, and rejected. You can listen to it like one watches a video of a car accident over and over and over again in slow motion. Episode 2, Vacuuming. The first song on my first album is about what happened to my father when he tried his best to make a go of it as a teaching pastor in our church
1: he's not much, want cry, but he's so much, uh...
0: Well, Sigmund Freud would approve, this song is about my mother. A Freudian slip is when you say one thing and mean your mother, I mean another. I never knew I'd grow up to be, in many subtle ways, so much like my mother. I grew up in the 70s and 80s, a time in which my classes at school always had kids who'd gone through a divorce in their home, were going through a divorce in their home, or knew they might well experience this at some point in time. It looked really traumatic for them, too. It left lasting scars. And it wasn't so much the fact that their parents weren't together anymore. It seemed like the tumult and chaos and conflict of their parents' relationship ending while they were still trying to live together colored the home far more than getting the separation agreement signed did. Also, that chaos and conflict sometimes continued, even with parents living separately and legally divorced. Now, it goes without saying, that even if you live in a Christian culture that strongly discourages divorce, you can have all of the aforementioned chaos and conflict anyway for as long as you like without actually having the divorce that goes along with it in most homes. Emily, that's not the Emily from around here, but Emily from England, and not the Emily who works as a personal support worker, but the one who used to work as a police officer, and not the one who's married to Brad, but the one who was married to a guy who cheated on her and so she divorced him and then had a relationship with someone raised in the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, which relationship has fallen apart, but which gentleman she retains connections to, if that's not too confusing, has this to say about cheating in marriage.
2: With my partner, Committing adultery, on on my viewpoint, there is part of me that does think, and I do know this people who commit adultery, it is something wrong with them. There is something not mentally right, and there is something wrong in the marriage. Do I look back and think, could I have made that work a little bit more? And then I'm like, but no, they still, that trust is still gone. And to mm-hmm. regain that trust again is completely, it's, it's not going to happen.
0: Would you say that when, Your husband has cheated on you. This doesn't just hurt the marriage, it kind of hurts you even after you're divorced. Like it it, it changes you.
2: 100%. Million percent. The psychological effects. So, speaking from my own experience, from the betrayal, I grieved my husband a long time ago, a long, long time ago. But the aftermath of it all is extremely damaging. Mm-hmm. especially when there's a third party involved and especially if you never thought in a million years that that person could do that to you because then it sends your head into a complete 360 of well am i going to be able to trust anyone because the one person mm-hmm. who who i believe never showed any red flags has done this to me completely gazumped everyone Every member of my family was so shocked, they couldn't believe it. And it's even my family have now questioned their judgment on people because my ex-husband cheated.
1: Now,
0: this is interesting because some people will say that all men are going to cheat eventually because it is the nature of men to cheat. And I don't agree with that. And I don't think you do either.
2: I don't agree with that. I agree there are more physical needs that men may have just through biology, but that does not excuse them to go and find um gratification elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think it says more about a man for cheating than it does for them just to self-soothe and master their own needs. Right. Because it's all about needs at the end of the day when it comes to relationships. And I don't think there are women just as bad as men. Yeah women who cheat, um, and and the people that do cheat, whether you're a man or you're a woman, I'm going to say seven or eight times out of 10, it will be down to some form of childhood experience or learnt behaviour. It it will always boil down to that. For a man to constantly cheat on his wife, says more about him and what his needs are, and it shows that maybe he can't communicate them effectively to his wife.
0: Michael Vetter weighs in.
3: I have a friend who's recently, well, he hasn't yet, but he's, he's aiming for um, divorce. And he, it, he's been married for over 20 years. And he, he's realizing that the thing that he expected from um, his wife that she would grow into which is, would be his, the way he, his values and the way he sees family and what he thinks love is never happened. And he's been waiting, you know, and, and giving rope and giving rope. And basically he said the way he described it, he's, he's been, um, having enough love, he's been creating the love for both of them and kind Mm -hmm. of like making the whole story, um, happen and then it, but it was never there. And there's this feeling on the other part that his counterpart who's saying, well, not even seeing, not even seeing that yeah. ever that, that that was an issue. And so is refusing to feel guilty. And I, I can see, I can see both sides of that.
0: And that, that specific instance is a great example where infidelity doesn't have to be a person. It could be like a, what you're doing in your life, like social activism or whatever it is that this takes all of your life and you have nothing for your husband. Right across the road from our house, Curry's folks were going through a divorce when I met them as a small child. It sounded like there were all the problems. Drunken shouting matches, throwing things, punching walls, the lot. My grandpa and grandma both came out to meeting, but only Sunday mornings rather than all the other meetings my own family went to, and both of my grandmothers sat up toward the front with us, while grandpa sat in the special non-member section in the back. He'd been a member his whole life, but my grandmother's serious darkness, depression, paranoia, combativeness, and trouble discerning reality from conspiracy led him to conclude, after eight children and living separately, that he wanted to divorce her, to make it clear that he didn't intend getting back together with her, to mark out a boundary line. Certainly in my brethren group, they don't want you to divorce. But they also don't really have any mechanism in place to provide couples therapy, nor do they approve of it. So it's like you're not supposed to divorce, but they don't help you make your marriage work either.
2: That's where they're behind. Yeah. I don't agree with that because my understanding of the brethren that I'm familiar with, there is a process to marriage. If that's going to be their way, then there needs to be a process on getting out of the marriage. So if that means you've got ticky boxes going into the marriage, then mm-hmm. there should be ticky boxes coming out of the marriage. Yeah. But if there is five ticky boxes going in, then there needs to be five coming out to make it equal. For people who don't get on anymore, because as human beings, we evolve and we change. Yeah, And you could marry at 17 years old. And then when you're 30, you're completely different people. It's human nature. You're going to evolve and grow.
0: They really don't want people divorcing at all. And if people do divorce, they don't want them to remarry at all. But people do meet new people and want to get married.
2: Yes, they do. I haven't found anyone who wants to marry me yet. <laughs> Maybe one day.
0: Further Brethren reviews of this podcast, portions of it listened to in order to see what an episode said about them, were, poor guy, it's genetics. His grandmother threw a pan of hot oil at his grandfather. He has serious emotional problems. That's just the way it is. Middle-aged sons were then told not to listen to the podcast, it being clearly the ravings of a genetically defective lunatic. If I'm never going to be happy anyway, how can I then have the nerve to complain about my church doing anything that made me unhappy? Previous podcast episodes trace my finding a then-private cassette tape mailed likely from India or Africa to my dad from our local brethren missionary, explaining why grandpa was never going to be allowed to divorce his wife without getting excommunicated and shunned for life. There would be no redemption for him.
3: Mark chapter 10 does not annul Matthew chapter 19. A man putting away his wife is looked at as his act or his will. If he puts away, he has broken a tie God formed by his own will. Then marrying another is adultery.
0: The assembly could not be seen to be connected with such unloving, unchristian behavior as that. It makes me cynical that the cassette was labeled in such a way and the voice on the tape chose its words so well that you'd pretty much have to be my dad or a member of my family to have any idea who was talking or whom or what was being discussed. And so, my grandfather got his divorce anyway, got excommunicated from our church for life, sitting in the outcast section in the back Sunday mornings, and lived out the rest of his days alone in a small house in the woods. And he crushes a romantic interest he had remaining entirely unrequited until he was put in the same nursing home as his ex wife. After being reminded who I was, he told me, Don't ever let them put you in a place like this. He felt like he'd been abandoned in that place. But this song, was written long before all that. My dad mostly spoke with his friend Carl outside of meeting and like dad, Carl seemed to have a brethren marriage that didn't really work on any level. It was almost entirely arguing and suspicion and accusation and fights over control. All of that was fine in our assembly so long as one didn't break brethren rules, for example, getting a divorce and certainly moving on to a new relationship or a dating life after that. Now that Carl's wife is active in the secular seniors' community lately instead of just the meeting, she doesn't need Carl around, and so they don't live together, and she's much happier, dealing with her relatives and senior friends instead of the ornery old cuss. This song was written at a very uncomfortable time for my family. My dad, as per the first song on my first album, had been silenced and shut out of church business and duties, and had descended into depression in the intervening years, We, his two kids, had graduated high school, gone off to university, but didn't seem to be getting good jobs after we graduated from university. Never mind incels, there's a well-established ancient stereotype of the angry young man. Young men who are disenchanted and cynical upon meeting the adult world head-on and finding out it's not as advertised. That it's not fair, it's not equitable, it's mostly a performance. A lot of it's just fake things carried out by phonies, to quote Holden Caulfield. But I can tell you that you can be a pretty angry middle-aged man when you've done everything you're supposed to, followed all of the rules, and most other people don't bother to follow all of those rules, and you don't get what you were promised at all. It's very hard not to be an angry middle-aged man if that's what's happened to your life looking back. And I think that's what was going on with my dad. It's like you've paid dearly, with chunks of your life, and you didn't get what you were paying for at all. Like when you put money into a vending machine and your chocolate bar just hangs there, never quite falling. It's like that, multiplied by a million. I knew from reading her book, Angry Conversations with God, that Susan would relate to this.
4: Oh, gosh. My my dad was also, he was a rageaholic. Um, I've seen this more and more with middle-aged men who so much to be a man is to go out and to do and have agency in the world and accomplish. And then you hit middle age and you realize that your life is going downhill, that we all have regrets. Um, But I think women may be more naturally relationally oriented just because of our biology, that maybe we've created more of a web of relationships. But I've seen this a lot with my siblings and friends They're the ones who fuel the negativity on, um, I mean, there's plenty of women involved too, but um, on social media that has basically torn the fabric of our our societies apart. But I see this a lot with middle-aged men that they just, it's rather than walk through the grief of, I didn't get the things that I wanted, my life isn't what I wanted, Uh, which can be vulnerable and feel too girly to do, but it then just becomes rage. And my mom would retreat into church and church groups and Bible studies. Growing up, my parents were much older when they had me. And by the time I was a teenager, they were done. They were tired and exhausted and, you know, had the weight of their own lives and bad choices piling up on them. But I, there was so much chaos in the house and I became obsessive about cleaning, um, particularly going into the pantry and organizing the food because it was always a mess. Things were, there was always just piles of mess around and there would be like three half eaten boxes of uh, frosted flakes, some with weevil moths in them. And I would just get so mad. I'd be like, dad, make sure you finish one before you open another, you know, and he, he I was gotten to the place where bark, no bite. And I, I, I fought that. Um, but yeah, I, I looked for something I could control myself. And then later it became food and I chose an Irish girl's drug and I developed an eating disorder because mm-hmm. it was something that I could control because the rest of the world felt out of control, but you, very much, I think it's very common to see the father figure reach a certain point, feel frustrated and have no outlet and no nothing to do. So that rage becomes focused on something outside oneself. And that's, you know, what has fueled a lot of these extremist groups, social media extremist groups. And it's got a layer of anonymity behind it too.
0: Our dad blustered and raged about us losing faith in the Christian group that had treated him so shabbily and unfairly, and we'd started going to movies and live music and so on anyway. In her teens, my sister had tried to get married, brethren-style, to a guy in his early 20s who ended up having profound emotional and mental problems of the narcissistic, delusional, scary variety, and my dad hadn't been able to deal with him nor his brethren parents. I'd had to step up and be the closest thing to the man of the house that we had, telling the guy that he couldn't come in, phoning police, getting restraining orders, and all of that. When the guy's uncle said what he did about my podcast, my family, and genetic craziness, I guess he knew what he was talking about. As to Dad, we'd all seen that the man behind the curtain was empty bluster and threats and nothing else. He knew only what his brethren upbringing had given him, narrowed options, rules, protocols, fear, shame, and guilt— There was precious little love and wisdom coming from him. In fact, the only way he knew how to show me he loved me was by fixing my car, which needed doing a lot, and which he always leaped at the chance to do for me. I will never forget how it felt when my car broke down just over the border into the States, and I phoned my dad, and he told me that he was too old to help with things like that anymore or come pick me up or anything, though I was two hours away.
4: I i think that there's a certain amount in which human beings want someone to give us the rules for us to obey because it's a lot scarier than for us to make choices ourselves. Definitely. That was my entire professional life was like, What do you want me to do, God? I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. Rather than like, What if God were like, Oh, Susan, what do you want to do? That was the most terrifying thing of all. I know I don't want to choose.
0: God likes passion, I think. Yeah. I wasn't raised that way, but I really think he wants us to want stuff.
4: Well, th- what else is it there for? Henry Nouwen said desire is the atomic energy of the soul and we often mistake passion there you know there's great energy there the, you know the possibility of things going terribly wrong or things going terribly right and like the parable of the talents a lot of times we bury it because we're afraid mm-hmm. but god loves passion it's He's, you know, I'd rather you were hot and cold or hot or cold. What else is it there for? Passion, especially in young people, is what moves the world forward.
0: The thing about parents is it's easiest for them to show you the way by leading you in the way they took themselves. But the 90s world was very different from anything my parents had known when they were young. Dad had gone to meetings, not broken rules, finished high school, got into a one-year teacher program immediately after high school, and was principal of a small rural schoolhouse before his 20th birthday. He earned a full-time wage with raises and no additional education required for the next 30 years, preaching and teaching a bit at meetings to help him stay awake during them, then retirement at a bit younger than the age I am now, having gotten married and bought a house his father had built him and a new sports car and had two kids, sold his house, and built a new one himself, again, all before reaching 30.
1: Damn, it's good to be a boomer.
0: Well, I had gone to meetings, not broken rules, finished high school, and did my three years of university to allow me to then apply for teacher training, and they weren't taking new people to train as teachers right then. In fact, there was a teacher surplus, and they were cutting teachers. And despite going to meeting, and not breaking rules, and staying in my seat through a very messy global division... I was ostracized for being too much of a thinker and kind of grouped in with my dad when he ran into trouble with his peers at meeting who wanted change. Like me, dad doesn't
5: deal well with change. Harold says this about church splits. When a church splits, it's not 50 or 60 go one way and 50 or 40 go another. Mm-hmm. It's like 20 go this way and 20 go this way, and there's 60% of people they go nowhere. Will go nowhere. Mm-hmm. And what they've lost is not a denomination or or an assembly or a meeting hall. Some of them will never hunger to know God again, mm-hmm. and and that is the sin in religion. Because you're showing them what you think it is. Yeah, because you have a better plan than God. Dad
0: watched with interest, breathing a sigh of relief that I didn't seem to be gay after all, despite his fears throughout my bookish childhood as I tried to connect with Brethren girl after Brethren girl after Brethren girl I met, just as he had done with the one girl he soon married, at Bible conferences. But the division removed most of the young Brethren people, and many of the young Brethren women who hadn't left in the division were clearly not interested in marrying a Brethren guy at all. In fact, very few Brethren girls I grew up with ended up with Christian men. I know the ones I pursued my most serious relationships with didn't, in the end, And that seems to have worked out very well for them. So, at the time this song was written, everything my father was trying to lead me into wasn't paying off. And everything he warned me away from, movies, music, the occasional beer, worldly brethren friends, didn't seem to be bringing the complete life ruination that he predicted. In fact, they were the only sources of comfort available to me. So, he had to either change or hold firm in his worldview and outlook on what it took to succeed And he went with the latter. Truly didn't understand why I wasn't married with a brand new car, a house, and kids all on schedule to be permanent life fixtures. As I said, he'd gone on to build his own house from the grass up before age 30. I wasn't terribly competent with basic carpentry, wiring, and plumbing. You can't do that stuff if you rent an apartment. Basically, between he and I, it was pretty adequately summed up by Cat Stevens' song, Father and Son. and I know that it's not easy to become When you found something going on But take your time, think a lot Why think of everything you've got For you
1: will still be here tomorrow But your dreams may not How can I try to explain It's not time to make a change Just sit down and take it slowly You're
0: still young, that's your fault There's so much you have to go through Find a girl, settle down If you want to, you can marry Look at me, I am old
1: But I'm happy All the times that I've tried And all the things I know inside, it's hard, but it's harder to ignore it. If they were right, I'd agree, but it's It's them they know, not me. And there's a way, and I know that I have to go away. I know I have to go. I know I have to go
0: him not seeing why there was a need to change and me thinking that there was a desperate need for something to change as to marriages neither mom nor dad had had the example of parents who built adult lasting marriages mom's own dad had run off when she was an infant so she had no experience of men who stayed her controlling brother and foster dad and stepbrother had been sketchy to say the least dad's parents had never gotten along and so eventually divorced Dad was choosing not to divorce and had no role models at all about how to work through any marital troubles at all. He certainly never sought any kind of counseling, including marriage counseling. And no one at our church gave couples counseling. Admitting you had a problem was the first step in losing your membership there. It made you look bad. And members looking bad made the group look bad. So out you'd go. If the meeting, I mean, Jesus, wasn't the answer to everything then what were we selling? Carol, whose parents went to meeting with mine, had this to say about the lack of marriage role models. What do you think of that? Um, everyone talks about the thing where the man reaches middle age and he has done nothing but work and he doesn't really have a good social life or even connection to his wife and kids. Everything's just a meeting or his job.
6: Well, that is pretty common. I think whether in the meeting or out of the meeting, it's easy to get caught up in... You know where you're prone to spend your time and what you want to develop. So I did see several meeting. I spent a lot of time at work, and then the kids kind of got the leftovers, and yeah. they'd be frustrated that it wasn't as easy to manage as say their job was. I'm not certain it was so easy for uh, men to see what a father and a good uh, husband would actually look like for them.
0: Yeah, if they didn't have that, um, it would be hard. For them to do it.
6: Yeah, so in the case of my dad, it wasn't really modeled, so it was, you know, sort of a, a guessing game and nothing to anchor himself to as he <laughs> tried to figure that out. And the meeting, you know, gave him a sense of you know, family and, and something that, uh, where he could find his place, you know. And the fathering was like a guess.
0: Mom was miserable. She wanted us all to go to all of the meetings every week and not go anywhere else. But Dad was in disfavor there, and besides, the whole thing had split tumultuously in half the year before, leaving mostly just old people. So there were almost no people our age left to hang out with except the ones from Pennsylvania, who Mom liked but really didn't approve of us hanging out with. She wanted Brethren rules enforced, and Dad was a shell of his former self, and we two kids were done listening to him. And we were both living back home for a bit after university. I was back living there at 22 until I could get enough shift work at group homes for the handicapped that I could afford a dingy basement apartment somewhere. My very emotionally damaged sister and I were hanging out with those Pennsylvania brethren 20-somethings who were rumored to be up to partying in excess. Dad had shouted and thrown things for a few years there in an attempt to regain fatherly control, especially when we were away at school and depending on his financial support, but now we were done with that. The Brethren stuff just seemed soul-crushing and stupid to us mostly, and we wanted real spirituality, a real understanding of God and the Bible, not just, Jesus is coming, don't party. We weren't leaving the meeting or anything, but we certainly were expanding our horizons, looking to do that, trying to spread our wings as the big hand of our church culture blindly shoved us birds hard, beak-first into that little plastic funnel over the meat grinder that was our church fellowship.
5: I do plumbing right now. And we go into people's houses and you listen to couples. You can tell if that marriage is going to work or not. Or will they stay together and despise each other? There's a lot out there.
0: Sometimes they stay together. They seem to despise each other, but they're going to stay together.
5: Yeah. Well, if you don't believe you can get anybody else. Right. Or if you're monetarily locked in, money has a lot to do with it. And then, of course, there's our favorite conversation, religion. But you're not allowed to divorce. You're not allowed to divorce. You know, I was told over and over again about divorce, and I just looked at people and said, Scripture doesn't say you can't get divorced. Better to divorce than to hate each other and want each other dead. Mm-hmm. I said he actually gives room for it in the book. No, he doesn't. I said, read the book. Quit listening to your religious thing that wants to control people.
6: I've seen ones like, you know, you described about your parents where well, you know, maybe the wife is wanting more or she's more intellectual or she's more stimulated by, you know, intimacy and a strong sort of bond with her husband and he's more into either working or his role in the meeting or his role in life or he or he may either be completely disinterested in knowing her that way or unable to to sort of know that he doesn't provide that for her. I have seen more of the women wanting
0: that than the men. I mean, I've met people my whole life who, when they were young, their parents told them that masturbation was dirty and filthy and perverted and corruptive and it would ruin your brain. And I've talked to women who... We're told that sex is something that men like. And so you just give it to your husband so he won't divorce you. And I'm
5: sure you've encountered all of that kind of Christian I, nonsense I, too. I have counseled over the years. And I was single when I was counseling. And I always had somebody else in the room with me when I counseled a couple or a woman. And um, everything was dirty. Mm-hmm. Everything was bad. I Nobody would know. This story, so I can share it. But I counseled a lady. I had uh, the the secretary in with us, and she was telling me that she wanted her husband to know the Lord. So until he gets saved and comes to church, she was withholding intimacy. And I said, Why would you do that? Well, one way or the other. And I said, So for the rest of his life, he'll come to church and and hate. He'll you know. I said, "Uh, do you love your husband? She says, of course I do. That's why I want him to be in the kingdom. And I kind of laughed and I said, and you don't like your husband touching you? You don't like intimacy? Of course I do. I miss it. I said, well, then I've got a suggestion. (laughs) And I said, every time you come to church, rejoice in Jesus and go home and love your husband like you've never, ever loved him before. And every time you come out Wednesday night, go home. And love your husband. And when you get up in the mornings, you say, thank you, Jesus, for his salvation, and you kiss him goodbye like you've never kissed him before. And make him his lunch and spoil him. Did you ever find out if that advice was followed? Oh, he came to church. Yeah. Uh, It was a matter of three months. And he says, what the hell are you teaching my wife? And I told her, I said, if God is love and he chased you romantically, isn't that how you love your husband? And it worked. And I was shocked because I thought I was speaking through my backside, but, you know, when you when you put him to the test, but actually he became a friend of mine when I was in Cornwall for a long time. Yeah. And it was very cool.
0: The reality was that my parents' marriage hadn't worked for at least a decade, where my mom used to be able to rely on Dad to take us on family trips to Bible conferences and tour connections at the Brethren Assembly in Montreal where she'd grown up and to visit our various brethren relatives in Canada and the States. Increasingly, Dad just lay around, depressed, or moped around outside, not talking to anyone, building things and taking them apart, building sheds and barns and fences and tearing them down. Carol says that the meeting culture is supposed to fill in all those gaps in the lives of stay-at-home brethren mothers. And you're saying that women may pressure other women to stay in relationships that are really damaging? Yeah. Why would they do that?
7: Well, I'm not sure if they do it because it's a projection or they can actually see how the relationship itself may not be the way that somebody might perceive it, although that's hard to you don't know for sure since they're not in it, but
0: might challenge their um, faith too, to think it might them,
7: challenge every, it might just rock everything, you know,
0: because, because God puts people together. And so if they're together, then if you leave him, then you're going against God's work or something.
7: That's been taught a lot. Right. I did notice some brother and obviously and meeting people like my parents were somewhat, they were pretty happy together in some sense too, because the meeting is something you can kind of count on. It's it's, it seems right. There's a certain amount of meaning involved. If you, it's kind of like a assembly line, Henry Ford assembly line with the car at the end. If you do these things, yeah, you're gonna get a certain amount of at least enjoyment or reward socially or from you know spiritually. It seemed or something. You know, it works for some people, and the ones that does work for it, kind of, I think it sort of takes the edge off of some of those existential um, milestones that other people might get in their life that might kind of push them over the edge in general.
0: Carol's mom and mine read a few novels every week and have for most of their adult lives but she just all she knew to do is vacuum the house and wash dishes and do laundry and so she just did those things and she did them way more than it seemed that was necessary to do that.
6: Why do you think she did that?
0: It seemed kind of meditative, sort of a way to make your brain go away. Just go and work with cleaning things. Kind
6: of sad.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um
6: but yeah, there was a certain there was a a certain amount of escapism that I saw. You know, my mom would go and read books for hours, you
0: know. Same with my mom. She still does that. that.
6: Yeah, my mom too. So reading books gave her, I think, something to look forward to, something to escape into, and something that was, you know, not a guilty enough feeling, but also, you know, did the job of maybe less lonely and less, um, like a, you know, maybe some of the high expectations she felt in the mom.
0: Yeah, I noticed that they, they don't really read, you know, Bible ministry. They read escapism.
6: Yep. <laughs> and I wish growing up that it you felt more like that was okay. I used, I used to see her kind of
0: hide it under the pillow. Yeah. I so said, I was going to talk to you and your parents phoned my parents. We well, were dead to all the talking. And I said to mom, who's always looking for books, we should see what Carol's mom would recommend. And right away, they got all bashful about, well, I'm sure that she wouldn't read the same books as me because, you know, they might be inappropriate. And mom's books aren't that inappropriate. She does like murder mysteries and stuff like that.
6: Yes, I'd say the same about my mom. She w- She has been rebuked a couple times about um, not, not only reading Christian books.
0: What sort of people um, would rebuke well, your mom the, for, for that?
6: Family members or people in the meeting. So the reason um, she's had that is she got to a point where she would sell books online. Back before Amazon, there was half.com, Mm-hmm And she would set up a little bookstore and sell her books there. And so she would go to garage sales and library sales and pick up uh, loads of books and she got really good at knowing which books would make money and how much they sell for but when she was when people knew that she sold books that you know may might not be from btp only or weren't exactly christian um, i think she did feel you know a little bit burdened by it and kind of became a lot more private about it
0: hopefully she kept doing it
6: she did keep doing it (laughs)
0: Cause yeah, my mom is always desperate for books and I want to give her a big box and just, Oh no, just maybe two or three. And then a couple of weeks later, she needs, you know, another two or three.
6: Yes, There's a, there's a modest aspect to it. You know, you can't want too much. You can't, you can't read too much, but I think that has not been something that I think my mom personally can just admit or, or at least, you know, maybe it feels too self-indulging or something.
4: You know, we're not monks. I think you have to find that th- my husband has a stratomatic baseball. He It makes him happy. He, plays, he you know, he loves playing, um, you know, computer baseball. He loves baseball. So, you know, everyone needs their thing.
0: Megan's non-Christian parents are still married, but she's not sure they should be.
4: My parents
8: are still married, um, but I kind of feel like they shouldn't be. I don't think they're good <laughs> for each other. Um, And that's made a very toxic kind of um, upbringing.
0: Armchair psychology of the moment suggests that a relationship can survive a lot of trouble. But once there's contempt
5: on either side. It's it's history. It's history.
4: It can be that constant needling or it can be passive aggression. Um, The harder work is to actually bring those things to the surface and actually be honest and open about it.
8: So my views on divorce is kind of a bit tricky. I think you should try absolutely everything you can before choosing that option, you know, whether it's like sort of counselling or spending time apart, you know, find who you really are, what you really want, and then come back to each other. But I think it obviously has its place if you are very unhappy um, or if, you know, no changes can be made, no compromise, then yeah, I think you should have the option to get a divorce, it shouldn't be a case of, well, you're married now, you're stuck together. That's it, get on with it.
0: And that's why the brethren I was raised in uh, took a very traditional view from the Bible, which was that if your spouse cheated on you, you were allowed to divorce him or her. um, And then you would be free to marry somebody who um, was also free to marry, as far as they were concerned, you could marry a widower or a single person or someone whose spouse had cheated on them, and therefore they divorced them. But um the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church that you are familiar with wants people to divorce as soon as somebody gets withdrawn from and so they have weirdly they in they really pressure people to get divorced so if you are a couple and the wife um let's say the husband because that's more more common the husband I don't know gets in trouble gets kicked out the wife will be strongly encouraged, strongly encouraged. to divorce him and my parents were very unhappy but they weren't allowed really to get divorced. Um, My grandparents um, were not getting along and he divorced her. And so he was kicked out.
8: That's a really difficult choice to make, isn't it?
0: She had real emotional problems um, and he couldn't deal with that or live with that. uh, So he wanted to divorce her. So he divorced her. What happened then is she came out to church and sat up front with us and he had to sit in the visitor section for the rest of his life.
8: Oh, that's sad.
0: I think so. Mom never went anywhere on her own because she didn't think she should have to, being a married woman with a husband and all, but Dad increasingly wouldn't go anywhere at all. So he wouldn't go anywhere, and she wouldn't go anywhere unless he'd agree to take her. And where we used to have visitors over, Mom endlessly vacuuming and scrubbing and baking until the whole house looked sterile as a viewing room in a funeral home, increasingly no one came over. Once Dad was in trouble at meeting, that was mostly it, apart from out-of-town relatives. And increasingly, our relatives mainly visited in other homes with lighter atmospheres than ours. And if we wanted to be included, we went over there, wherever they were staying. Mum got to visit at relatives each time until Dad wanted to leave, which was increasingly early. We kids had been in the same boat until we started driving. We could stay until Dad wanted to leave. Then his voice would ring out, and we'd all have to head for the car or face his wrath. Not a lot has changed. Last weekend, my family met at Starbucks because my niece was back for Thanksgiving from school. We stayed talking even after the drinks were done, so Dad quickly ran out of his ability to sit, which is very short at the best of times, and moved the car from the spot where it was parked to wait at the front entrance for us to come out. None of us moved, so he drove it around and around in the parking lot until we eventually did feel like leaving. He was hopping mad by the time we said our farewells to my niece, who had a plane to catch, Too angry, in fact, to say goodbye to her at all. Back in the day, when my sister and I were away at school, and when we eventually moved out, my parents began sleeping in separate rooms. They said it had to do with differing sleeping patterns, but I'm not sure that was all of it. As I said, my mom's father had been a deadbeat dad she'd never met, and my dad's parents had gotten divorced, as had each of his three brothers. This meant each brother was as out of favor with the meeting as grandpa, but unlike him, they mostly left in the division, found their way to some less demanding church, or just stopped coming out to any church at all. Mom and dad wouldn't divorce, though, because it wasn't done. They'd have lost their right to take communion on Sundays at church if they did, for one thing, or to attend all of those brethren social events dad wasn't taking mom out to anymore. Eventually, Dad seldom took Mom further than the local grocery store or donut shop, and she didn't go much of anywhere on her own, even though she eventually got her driving license. And it's still like that. I got so tired of Mom complaining that 15 years after the house was built, Dad was never going to paint her kitchen. She was right. And not listening to my sister and I telling her that, though she saw it as his job, him being the husband and all, that painting a kitchen isn't generally done with one's penis, and so she could just do it herself. The one night, as kind of a prank while still living there, I painted Mom's kitchen the color she'd said she'd want Dad to paint it. Off-white. With Mom, absolutely everything is literally beige or off-white and mild or vanilla, nothing spicy or vivid. Everything's as muted and understated as she is. I carefully painted the kitchen while they were asleep, just as carefully putting every little thing right back where it had been before it got painted. So they woke up and made breakfast, "'and slowly started to wonder why the kitchen felt different somehow. "'I had to tell them. "'It had turned from dull white-primered drywall "'to semi-gloss off-white paint. "'What a transformation! "'They were confused and a little bit happy, "'but it didn't change much about their marriage. "'No one much came over to our place, "'apart from my sister's crazy ex "'periodically showing up from the States "'even after I got the restraining order on him, "'and Mum and Dad seldom went anywhere.' But Mom vacuumed and scrubbed and dusted the house all day nonstop, having never worked outside the house since I'd been born, the 90s work world and school system in Ontario being quite different than they'd been in the 60s in Montreal. She cleaned and cleaned, though no one much was there making it dirty, nor was coming over to see what shape it was in. One added bonus of running a chainsaw, whippersnipper, or lawnmower if your dad, or a vacuum cleaner, or washing machine, or blender if your mom, is you can make the other spouse stop talking to you without telling them to shut up. Just fire that thing up, and they need to stop talking. With their hearing nowadays, they never hear each other anyway, and it seems to work for them. We eventually convince Dad to get a hearing aid. It sits charging endlessly when we visit. If we comment on him not having it in, he says he's saving it for when he needs to hear people. He has no suspicion at all that this could be construed as slightly unflattering to those of us who have come to visit. He didn't bother wearing it, for example, at Starbucks to visit with us last weekend. To this day, my mother is never not doing a load of laundry or washing dishes or cleaning with periodic breaks to read novels. If you knock on the door, she will be quite surprised and confused, but terribly pleased that someone has knocked on their door, and the vacuum cleaner and dusting stuff will generally be in the middle of a room somewhere, abandoned for a time in the middle of the endless decades of cleaning, and there will be dishes and cutlery and soap and water in the sink and things in the dishwasher and things in the washing machine and dryer, and if it's not winter, things hanging on the clothesline every single day. There is never a one-hour period in which no laundry and no dishes, no vacuuming and no dusting are in the middle of being done, even though two people live there. And these cleaning jobs are never finished. It seems meditative for mom, a place she goes to be somewhere else. Like dad, constantly building and repairing things all day long, while everything gets visibly more broken and fallen down the more he repairs them. When it
4: comes to like cohabitation, there's definitely the female instinct to nest. Mm-hmm. Um and sort of like you know, try to nest the space and it there's a certain amount of biology that goes into that where like woman likes to, you know, but I remember growing up a, a friend of mine, his mom, like everything in the house was perfect and you couldn't touch it. And um the dad was just kind of, you know, reduced to a yes, yes, dear, yes, dear. Mm-hmm. Um and and that's yeah. Well, when my husband and I uh, got married and moved in together, we, um, we didn't, we didn't have, we needed a new bed frame. We've got a queen bed and he's like, we don't, we can just put the mattress on the floor. I'm like, I'm not going to live like I'm in college.
0: Right. If I need to drive mom somewhere, she can never just grab her purse and leave. For an indeterminate amount of time, she's going to be putting things into or out of the washing machine, dryer, dishwasher, fridge, and freezer, fishing around under sinks, doing no one can tell what. She's running water in the kitchen sink, wringing out dish rags, and so on. It's quite a production. There's no telling when she will actually be ready, though she will insist she's ready the whole time she isn't ready. It's about as explicable as her insistence on cutting blocks of cheese the long way using only a butter knife results are consistently not good. Drives Dad crazy. Dad and Mom are much happier nowadays than back when I wrote this song, but things were pretty grim back then. In one of his extremely rare bouts of briefly speaking about relationship and feelings, Dad once told her, Mom says, that he pushed her and the whole world away in his pain in the 80s over church politics Uh, not that he used any of those terms mom has mostly always needed to be able to read his mind about his feelings and intentions notice that this is what i've always felt i needed to do with any women i've been involved with read their minds and understand them despite them trying not to be understood even if they won't admit all manner of things that are monoliths looming in their emotional landscape it annoys people when you know to step around those looming monoliths because this acknowledges that those monoliths are there to begin with. So it's almost but not quite as annoying to do that as to not know the monoliths are there and run smack into them. Knowing that, like painting the kitchen, it was never going to happen unless I intervened. Ten years ago, I took mom to England and to her relatives' houses there. She'd never been back there since moving to Canada when she was a toddler. We stood in the middle of the town of Battle, her having been born there 70 years earlier. We weren't sure precisely where. All we knew is that the Battle of Hastings and Mom's birth had all occurred in the same area of Sussex. So we stood there, and I got her a mug that says Battle on it. So where are you right now?
4: In Battle, Sussex, where I was born.
0: Despite being born in Battle, like Conan the Barbarian, I don't think Mom has ever really argued or fought with someone in her life. If you say anything she doesn't like or agree with, she just kind of spaces out and stops hearing you while politely giving listening posture. Back in the day, our parents kept eating meals together, and that's about it, with increasing awkwardness and silence. Mom was inside, Dad was outside. Unable to rule the roost, Dad increasingly didn't speak to anyone apart from occasionally losing his temper and demanding things be more how he wanted them to be, to be more brethren, to be more like the before time. And increasingly, everyone ignored him. My dad, as any kids who took gym class with him can attest, was a great teacher, a fun adult to be a kid around. But he was also an absolutely terrifying, loud, hairy, brawny, bald-headed Wolverine-from-X-Men-looking adult to get on the wrong side of things. And when he came home from being a fun gym teacher at school, he had zero of that left for us at home. He needed us to go away and shut up. He's only my height, but former students remember him as being very, very tall. Like many of us, he was far more impressive when he was working in his own little kingdom than he was at church or home, where he'd been unceremoniously tossed off his throne. For some reason, once the meeting tore Dad up and threw him away when I was in my teens, he could yell and threaten all he liked, but I saw through it to the fear, despair, confusion, and terror underneath when I was like ten. I noticed that the shouting and throwing things were part of him having a tantrum and fleeing conversations he was unable to have, conversations I was quite happy to have. So I learned back then to simply wait out people who think they're starting and ending a fight in the one emotional outburst while I'm just getting the gloves laced up, my mouth guard in, and my corner men ready. Dad would be unable to understand the niceties of what was being said by the rest of us as we tried to figure out our changing social and ecclesiastical environment, and he would blow up and say my mom and sister and I never made any sense. And he would retreat to another room or go outside to hammer, blowtorch, chainsaw, crowbar, and dismantle things more. And the rest of us just kept talking. I was maybe 15 when I last remember him roaring like an enraged bull and putting his fist through the drywall. Drywall he'd installed when he'd built the place. My dad grew up in a home or his dad might backhand him across the face at the dinner table for disrespect with constant domestic strife at certain points. His mom ran off one time with a 22 rifle but a box of shotgun shells, apparently. And apparently tossed a pan of boiling oil at my grandfather, or so my sister's crazy brethren ex's crazy brethren uncle says. I have one uncle who threatened me online with physical violence for alluding to any of this stuff about our shared origins. Doesn't like people saying anything bad about the parents he fought with himself. But he's getting old enough now that I think I could probably just about kick his old ass if he finds out where I live and shows up at my door to physically object to anything anyone in the family told him they thought they heard was sort of in this podcast episode, though. When it comes to the Moors, I am the failed Moor, the joke Moor. I don't know how to man at all. Not right, anyway. The first thing I have always failed at is keeping my my damn mouth shut, to quote my grandpa Moore, when he heard I had opinions about the Bible because I'd been reading it and all. My response back in the day to this instance of dad's dramatic domestic drywall damage was to very calmly, in imitation, put my own fist through the living room wall as well a couple of days later. Very therapeutic, it must be said, and a lot easier than you'd think. Why Why did did you you do do that?" that? Dad demanded. Well, you do do that that whenever you you like, Like. so So I guess guess that's what we do do around here here now, I answered in my annoyingly calm way that tells you you'd better stop talking and leave the room and pretend no words were exchanged right now unless you want to calmly argue with me for the next several years about the matter. And my dad has about 30 seconds of arguing tolerance in him before he loses his temper and needs to leave the room. So Dad never punched the drywall again. We just stopped talking much at all, he and I. Mum hung a Bible verse text over each of the two holes. Decades later, when I moved the texts to see the unrepaired holes, both Mum and Dad wondered aloud how on earth holes had gotten there in the wall and how I'd known they'd be there. To them, the story of what had happened seemed very implausible. And so they did what they always did when I said things they didn't know how to talk about. They pretended I hadn't spoken pretended the wall behind the Bible texts was sound, just like they pretended that the Brethren teaching behind those Bible texts was. Mom and I always still talked, but some things upset her. For instance, she found upsetting my study of the Bible, my reading of non-Brethren authors like C.S. Lewis, N.T. Wright, Don Miller, and John White, my occasional conversations with non-Brethren Christians and pastors in the area, my reflections on the division that had just happened and how people were acting afterward by going out and starting to not only listen to but actually play live music, upsetting. I'll never know what it's like to perform live and have a parent there, instead of them sitting at home saying I shouldn't be doing that. We had a lot of discussions, Mom and I. I'd have discovered an unfamiliar and exciting thought fresh from C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters or something, and I'd be uncertain about the common sense of some brethren practice or doctrine or other, and Mom would get upset but not really be able to state a counterposition at all. Like I said, what happens when you argue with mom is very quickly she just zones out, goes away in her head somewhere, like she did when she was a kid. Anything you say isn't going in there, but she doesn't end the conversation or anything. Anything she says back isn't really a clear response to anything you've said and even to what she was saying before she trailed off in her thoughts in her speech. At one point, when I'd just moved out, My father told me I wasn't welcome in their house at all. If I was going to say such unscriptural, read unbrethren things about the Bible and the Lord. Upsets your mother, he said. He never admitted to his own feelings and tended to ascribe them to mom, to, as the woman, have. So I decided to never go back there again. I wasn't living in my parents' basement. I was paying monthly for a dingy basement apartment of my own, after all. And it must be said... A lot of kids stop fighting with their Christian parents of that age and kind of divorce them. Decide the relationship is too fraught and messy and decide to end it all, at least for the foreseeable future. So that's what I was doing. I wasn't living with my parents. I wasn't talking to my parents. This went on for a few months, and I wrote this song. Well, first I wrote a nice Mother's Day song about mom being a loving, nice person, which she certainly is. But then I wrote this one about how unhappy she was. I recorded it on my brand-new cassette four-track recorder and played it for her once Mom had asked me to meet her and Dad at a restaurant to agree not to stop talking forever. After all, the sort of intermediary action Mom pretty much never takes. Mom said the song sounded about right, but she didn't like me mentioning Dad's flatulence in song. While wandering off podcast topics to discuss the recent overturn of Roe v. Wade with Anson, a conservative Christian of color, a lawyer, and someone who was very active in the Democratic Party and elections in Michigan until he was forced to face the fact that the Democratic Party does not include people with anything like a traditionally Christian pro-life position We got into what traditional marriage means despite attempting to remove religion. Um, Mm -hmm. America still seems to be very wrapped up in the idea of the family. So, and, and like the Catholic church actually. So yeah. Why is the Catholic church doesn't recognize gay marriage um, is against abortion is uh, against divorce. I mean, all of this is about, we want you to get married, stay married and have kids. And it's it's a i mean when people talk about tradition and and i look at what the bible would have had to say about divorce people want to be traditional but they don't want to be bible traditional i don't think i don't think they want to live in a world where the man can divorce the woman and then she's spoiled goods and the woman can't divorce the man no matter what
9: right is but is that i mean is that biblical or is that hebraic culture or middle eastern culture
0: that's a great question but like so when we say tradition like what what tradition and it it is a bit of a fiction the idea that right even like the the white wedding dress uh, everyone thinks about that and that started with queen victoria it's not that old it's scarcely Mm -hmm. old enough to be a tradition um the rings like so many things so i i'm i'm not deconstructing the whole thing and saying marriage is, is all a sham
9: well and it, it's the difference between liberals and conservatives is largely for yeah. whom do you have compassion and and what aspects of the christian life do you feel are important you know conservatives they feel like family lives and, and sexual lives are paramount you know they must be pure and, and that's how we display godliness but the poor to hell with them they need to work a little harder you know, and, and Hey, if you get public benefits for damn sure you shouldn't be buying soda and potato chips, Mm -hmm. you need to buy vegetables, stuff your kids actually needs. Right. So uh, I I don't, I don't believe that, but, but conversely also, I I think that, you know, yeah, I mean, there's going to be times when kids have sex. There's going to be times when people look at porn, there's going to be times when, you know, people are attracted to the same sex and how do we, as a Christian, how would we deal with that situation that person as christ would and i think if if we really kind of zero in on that how would he approach the situation we kind of have to let go of a lot of ideas that we have so for example there's no right to marriage i, I think scripturally if you look at, at marriage like um it's kind of loosely understood to be a right like hey you know if i mean saint paul talks about it. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, right?
0: I don't don't think you get to pick your wife, though, do you? As far as I can see in the Bible, you don't get to pick who she's going to be.
9: Yeah. I mean, it's, I think that in that time, I mean, they, they really sort of thought that your elders would pick, you know, or, or it was a different world. I mean, one, I think we have to acknowledge to, and I was going to say this earlier, we like to speak about feminism or patriarchy, right? But without acknowledging that there's different streams, different brands, of both of those, you know, ideologies or schools of thought, if you will.
0: So I don't think I wanted my mom to divorce my dad, but I was saying in the song that there were lessons to be learned from us making 100% of our week and lives revolve around meetings in that Brethren meeting hall and what it did to dad and the nastiness and hypocrisy revealed in the division that had just happened. And I was saying she couldn't wait around for dad to enrich her drab empty week. I was saying she needed to have a life outside those four walls, us kids gone, and her husband acting like his own father had once he divorced his wife, just puttering around outside and not having much going on besides that. I was saying she needed to take initiative and get a life of her own, spread her wings, try on the exploration and newfound freedom of adolescence like we were starting to do, albeit in her own middle age. And with continual support, read pressure from me, I had mom apply for a job I was applying for, working with illiterate high school dropouts, and they hired her instead of me. Her having 1960s teaching credentials that I put on her resume for her, and me not yet having teaching credentials of my own. So I applied for both of us. She didn't know how to use a computer to type things. She still doesn't. But she got that job instead of me. I think it really helped her to have people in her day to connect with other than her favorite nurse at the doctor's or checkout person at the grocery store. Some very teenage, very sweary, tattooed, overweight, unwashed and often pregnant people most of the time. And mom was really good at that job and people universally liked her. She was very patient and she was very good at teaching people how to get their work done and how to be calm despite their life being chaotic. It was also a real eye-opener for her She'd always been appalled at how freely and colorfully she felt that we and our friends talked. But now she would work all day long with kids whose talk and
5: behavior was on a whole different level from ours. Divorce. Been through one. I think the fact that I went through a divorce started long before I was married. Um, broken people go into broken marriages. People that aren't happy. People that don't believe in themselves understand themselves, love themselves. And that was my story. Uh, I grew up very much not liking who I was, uh, guilt, shame, all kinds of stuff. And even though the Lord came into my life, um, I found out I was loved by him, but it didn't mean that I loved myself. And when things went bad, you go looking for security here. And, uh, when you go looking for security or you go looking for something to fill the void other than God, which is exactly what I did, uh, you can end up in a pretty bad situation. And uh, that's exactly what I did. Um, I ran to the worst possible thing because I was hurt and angry. And uh, it truly was about me more than her. Um, I'm not responsible for the thing somebody else does, it was a it was a bad situation, and uh, I ended up taking a fourteen year old daughter out of the home and raising her myself. It was that bad, but uh, I'm still responsible only for the part I played, even in getting into that relationship in the first place. And uh, the biggest thing is, through it all, uh, he loved me. He understood why I made the stupid mistakes I did. He uh, brought me through it. Some days were harder than others. Uh, Things came out into the open about things that happened in the family home with my daughter. I knew nothing about. Um, My life after the separation, there was no time for me to mourn a divorce or the loss of a family. I had a daughter to look after. But through it all, uh, he looked after me. And what was the the
0: Christian response to the news that you were getting a divorce?
5: Well, different, different people, different responses. Uh, the hardcore religious folk. Uh, I was told everything from, you're out of order with God now. Uh, I was trained. I went to Bible school. I was trained. I pastored. I evangelized. But I had people now telling me, Because of a mistake and responsibilities that I did not back away from. I raised my daughter, I got her help. Uh, I continued to follow through on three stepchildren. Um, But I've been told everything from you did the right thing to you're going to hell. Um, There's a lot of faith out there that use the name of Christ, but for me, Christianity is about relationships with God. And I very, figure, very quickly figured out when people speak to you who actually understands that it's about redemption and a relationship that's personal and some religious denominational nonsense that seems to think that's what empowers them, that they can judge. And uh, what, is it, ju-
0: what is it about some Christian groups that really make marriages hard to do?
5: Um, I didn't have that issue. Uh, my ex-wife was actually Jewish, Um, but you've seen a lot, though. Oh, I've seen a lot. And so I've there's counseled. A lot of, there's meddling, isn't there? Uh, yes, the I've of. I've counseled, and I'm trained to counsel people, marriage counsel, crisis management, and stuff. And uh, what you get in a lot of churches are very sanctimonious, wonderful people who think that they have answers. And what I've learned through it is there's only one answer, and that is, for God to so love the world. And if we bring people to a place of understanding how deeply loved they are, and if they learn to love themselves and appreciate who they are based on Him, nothing stays the same. And I think there'd be a lot less divorce and bad marriages if people were taught their own value. When you don't have value, you're going to find security somewhere. And all too often, it's not in the right person.
0: Do you think that church cultures can often encourage people to get married that probably should have thought about that a little bit longer?
5: Uh, I remember being young in the 70s going to a Pentecostal church and... uh, a rumor started going through the youth group that uh, the second coming of Christ was coming and all these kids wanted to have sex. So they decided they all needed to get married by 18. And, like, there was not an ounce of sanity in any of it. Uh, The youth pastor married one of the girls and all kinds of stuff happened. And it's, yeah, like... And they all stayed married? For the most part, believe like, it or not. Happily? Uh, no idea. I have lost touch with a lot of people. I think what, what's happening is in a lot of church circles, marriage becomes the answer to a, a situation that could become bad instead of marriage being an extension of what's good if what, that what makes kind, sense. What
0: kind of bad stuff, like being single or being pregnant? Uh, being,
5: well, I think it becomes the answer to being alone, to not yeah. being able to be physical, to not have somebody. And the attitude is that anything that you think on those terms is evil and bad, mm-hmm. unless you're married. Um, I, I, I think recently, a couple of years ago, there was a church I knew that uh, had adults going, young adults going to a youth group, and they weren't allowed yeah the boys weren't allowed to drive girls to the youth group but these were all adult people making a living and, and uh like how do you get to know somebody and get married if you're not allowed because allowed to drive with them mm-hmm. because you might you know oh, that will lead you astray and and we don't fight flesh and blood and there's enough spiritual things in this world and real issues that can lead you astray and I think what the church kind of does sometimes is they give you what I call a sin consciousness, and that's the ability to spend more time thinking about what you could be doing wrong than what God did right for god God's love it says, you know, perfect love covers a multitude of sin, teach people that they're truly loved, they matter that that you know he doesn't for fail or forsake. And allow them to believe in themselves and then mind your own business as they go out and start looking for somebody that they can share not only their life with, but their faith with.
2: With divorce, the decision to divorce shouldn't be taken lightly because the process of divorce is horrific. It is mentally scarring and emotionally depleting. And I don't think it really matters on what grounds for divorce that is. But prior to anyone making this decision to divorce, they do need to ensure that they have tried everything that they can in order to try and make it work. Mm. However, if infidelity has been caused, that is a boundary crossed.
1: Yeah.
2: And trust, in my view, I don't think would ever be able to be regained. With the cheating, I agree, my belief is when someone cheats, it says more about them than it does the other person. It will be about unhealed wounds from them and potentially trauma from them. I think a infidelity can be caused by any attachment style. And it's something that they haven't done the inner work on the marriage. There would have been a problem anyway, mm-hmm. and that and that could be on both partners. And nine times out of ten, it's communication.
0: Okay. People get divorced because of yeah. lack
2: of communication. Lack of. Explaining and articulating effectively their needs mm-hmm. and how they feel.
9: You know, there's this whole ongoing discussion about how unhappily married people are. I, I hear women talk about it more. And it's very like, well, you know, I got married and I ended up doing all the housework, all the cooking, all the, you know, this, that, and the other childcare. Um, you know, I, I feel like little more than a, than a, than a sex worker, and as when I hear that, red flags automatically go up because but I feel like you know, and having been a married person and now divorced, I want to ask a bunch of questions. And and one of the the things that I think is a, is a real phenomenon is I think that when people get married, and obviously children change a lot of things, but I think that there's this very real phenomenon here in the United States when people get married. They think that their behavior has to drastically change. And so the woman who is overburdened with laundry and cooking and cleaning and all these other tasks, she hasn't really stopped to ask herself, what does my husband actually want or expect of me? And I think if she did ask those questions, I think she might be surprised to learn that he actually just really wants you to treat him the way you treated him when you were dating. And he doesn't really want these big, grandiose dinners. Um, He'd be completely content with pizza and wings or pizza and a salad, like when you were dating. And this raises that
0: difficult question that very often the woman's complaining because she's doing too much of the work, not too much work. She wants she wants there to be that much work going on. She wants supper to be that complicated. And the guy doesn't. And she's going to be angry because he's not helping her make it that complicated. And that's where, I don't know how they could work it out before or during the relationship, but um, some compromise might be necessary that maybe I'm not going to help you make it that complicated because I don't, I'm not into it being that complicated or we're only going to do that on special occasions or holidays or weekends or whatever. Right. Um, but I do think you're onto something that, I mean, there's a meme that I saw that is getting pretty old now, but it's a, it shows an apartment, and the TV is on the floor of the apartment, and there's a lawn chair sitting in front of it, and the apartment's empty. And some the meme says, can you believe that men actually think this is okay? So yeah, just,
9: yeah, I've seen that.
0: And what's underneath that is the comment, women are just jealous that men can be happy with this. And, you know, I I don't <laughs> want to make it a gender war, but that it can sometimes be a fight of how clean does the house have to be, you know, how whatever... And if the two are not on the same page, that will really, uh, it, it gives the opportunity of he's not helping me or she's not helping me do what I'm doing that they they never agreed to to begin with. I think it could be in the opposite direction just as much where the husband's saying, well, she's not helping and she's not helping with something that you never even discussed that you were going to do it at all. You just assume right. that you're going to do it.
9: The, the trend that I've, that I've pointed out recently online was I said, listen, to this fictitious woman, I'd say, "Listen, you know, if you're honest, right? If you're honest about how he was when he when when you met him, say in college, his living space wasn't tidy or even necessarily clean. Yeah, but because you enjoyed his company and you wanted to inhabit his space with him, you would actually clean his apartment, and you did that consistently for an extended period of time and never complained. But here's the magic part of it." he never asked you to <laughs> yeah he just was thankful right he was happy that you did it and somewhere in his conscience he's like oh i guess she doesn't mind cleaning i kind of like having her around my place is cleaner when she's around and so you I know i love is, that i love that only really that uh, monstrous for thinking that that trend would continue after you got married not it's, at all. it's a conversation you need to have but right. don't I be lo- angry with him, and then go I shouldn't have to have this discussion because he's a grown man. No, you met him when he was twenty mm-hmm. and now he's twenty five and now you're tired, but you've never had the conversation because you couldn't have to. Well, mm-hmm. or because you shouldn't have to. How's that working out for you, sis? Right. You know, it's
0: <laughs> I forget the full context of it, but there was uh there's that that old expression where um some optimistic person said that if women ruled the world, there would be no wars. And the response was, yeah, too much dirt.
5: (laughs) How did you end up getting married to the wrong woman? How did that happen? I finished Bible school, which is interesting because the day I was ordained, my father came. He died two years later. But he, he came to that thing, and I was set aside into ministry. And I looked back to the back of the church, and he's standing there crying and uh, he ran up to me afterwards, just took a shot, came at me like a bullet, and he threw his arms around me and told me he loved me, and he gave me money. For my father to give money was like, wow, it was 20 bucks or 10 bucks, I don't remember. And I'm proud of you, was the other thing he said. The system I was in had its problems. Uh, Where people are involved, there's always going to be issues. That's why if... The people that are in charge have to constantly go back to what God wants, not what they want. But it was very money-oriented. The man who was sort of the head whatever, I'm not sure the title he used anymore, but he came to me and said, okay, you're through Bible school, you're going to go to Cornwall and start a church. And I said, no. Uh, I may be 27 years old, but I have problems. And I am working them out. I've been working them out through going to school. I've been working them out. I would like to stay someplace. I will get a job. I'll work for a living. And I'll I'll associate and assist somebody more mature. And I was told, you'll go to Cornwall or do nothing. I just put four and a half years of five years of my life into doing something. Now, I should have known, if God wants me to do something, nobody's going to stop it. But this is like you said, this is where I belong, this is what I was being taught, this is what, and blah, blah, blah. So I went to Cornwall and I started a church with four other people. I am not a pastor, but I love to evangelize. A pastor slowly feeds people and worries about the little flock. An evangelist wants to tell that little flock how to go out and love a dead and dying world. And we saw the church grow rapidly and fast. And I did some counselling, but to be honest, I was not a shepherd. And uh, about a year and a half in, we were well up over 110, 120 people uh, and stragglers and the ones that showed up once in a while. Uh, most of them were cruise matics They cruised from one church to the other, and for some reason they liked it there. Uh, my theory was you stay out of their pocketbooks, but unfortunately the man in church, um, would show up every Wednesday night and take two or three offerings up, and all he did was talk about money. When I was in Cornwall looking after people, you start to see things differently. And I realized, okay, there's something wrong here. So it got so bad that I sat down with this man and his wife and said, look, you've got to stop this. Uh, people are coming to Jesus on Sunday and leaving on Wednesday. And their salvation is more important than you going to India and being somebody. And they were quite offended by that. And uh, basically gave me ultimatums. And I had an open church meeting and we discussed what to do. And uh, the decision was made to leave the system quietly. We would cover off the bills and we would decide how we were going to go forward And uh, this man did everything in his power to pull my credentials. He, oh, it was vicious. And it hurt. I mean, it was like a divorce. It really was. I ended up going away for two weeks. And when I came back, the lady who looked after my apartment, she looked after the apartment building, she was a drunken woman who was coming to church and she was starting to get her life together, but she got drunk one night and gave pretty much everything I owned to the Salvation Army. So I wouldn't come back because she decided I was better off not there. So when I got there, I had music, books and clothes, nothing else. Everything else was gone. So I came back to Alma a very broken man and, uh, very lonely and very angry. And, uh, I went and did a job for a woman and for some reason I decided if I had a woman in my life because I'm 30 years old and I I didn't sleep around and I didn't do stuff and I had turned down two offers of marriage before that for some reason I thought eh, why not and it was stupid It it was not getting married now I genuinely cared about her but when you're broken, you don't think right. So you were about 27, 28 or 30? I was 30-ish. And she was the same age, roughly?
1: Uh,
0: 32. And she had a bunch of kids and she problems had three. and stuff. And did yep. she really lean on you to tell you about her problems and you were pastorly to her, or was that not the relationship?
5: Uh, she was Jewish. Um, she went to church. She gave her heart to God. And she was wonderful to date. And after I married three years, she told me that... Uh, well, I knew what you were looking for and I knew what to say, but the truth is I never loved you, Uh, but I knew you'd make money because I want to retire at 50. And I knew you'd this and I knew you'd be good with the kids and you're an absolutely amazing father. And I realized that my feelings again in my life had nothing to do with anything, uh, if that makes sense, because that's the way I lived my life. What I thought didn't matter. You'll go live at the family member's house we tell you to. You'll do this, you'll do that. And again, I married somebody I thought for love, and I found out, no, yeah, I love them. So that's how I ended up in the marriage I ended up in. But I don't blame God for that, because warning bells were going off the whole time. But when you're angry, when you're upset, when you feel rejected, when you feel things and all I really think he could do is sit back and wait. And, I'm uh,
0: assuming that she wouldn't have been able to properly have a relationship
5: with anyone anyway? Uh, no. She's now been through another marriage and divorce. And she's a very broken lady. Now, I mean, it's nice to know that she came back and said, you know, I should have stayed with you. I should have figured it out.
0: But you can't just fix somebody, That's No.
5: And I knew that. You knew that Plus, when you were
0: 30? Because I didn't know that when I was 30. Here, Harold is referring to needing to protect his daughter from her stepbrother.
5: I came home one day and my daughter was hiding under a table and said, I've called children's aid. You move me out or they will. When it's your daughter, mm-hmm. you have to do something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you go through what you go through. But if a relationship is built on the gift of God, not sin, but built on redemption, built on love, built on the fact that I want to love you and look after you, so I'm gonna make a way so you can't run away from me, unless you want to. You know, everybody thinks that when the book says, I set before you today, uh, life and death, choose life, he's like, choose life, like he's some angry thing that wants to choke. Yeah. No, it, it's that yearning, choose life. Right. and And even through that, he remained there. He pulled me through, and we've been on some amazing adventures together over the years, despite my need to be human, His spirit leads me in, in wonderful places. Uh, he is the one that taught me how to love. He taught me how to care. He He taught me how to to see love in the world, then he taught me to love the person I was meant to be, and then at 50-something, he taught me to learn to love love the person I started out as, and it's kind of neat. And at 60, he's kind of renewing back some of the things in time I screwed up. Um, That's what everybody needs. Let's look in the Wicked mailbag.
1: The Wicked Mailbag opening The Wicked Mailbag What's in the mailbag today? Let's look in the Wicked Mailbag?
0: Andrea seems to be from a church culture that, unlike mine, allows people to divorce freely, and she disapproves. She says divorce is the norm in church circles. It's an area where the church has been super hypocritical, particularly when it comes to divorce and remarriage. Like, don't tell us single people the value of being chaste when you have a whole block of people living in sexual immorality by virtue of getting divorces and remarrying without just cause, sexual immorality on the part of the other. If we are going to apply ancient scriptures to a modern culture, no one should get to carve out an exception. Nothing makes you feel more stupid or more cheated than when you're the only one following the rules. Courtney was raised just like my mom was and sounding rather like I imagine my mom feels writes, I was shocked to discover a few years ago that I didn't believe I had a right to take up space. A friend sent me a meditation thing to try and I awkwardly and obediently tried to follow the instructions to start off with a series of slow deep breaths allowing my body to expand and relax into the space I was in or something like that. I couldn't do it. My mind instantly told me I didn't have the right to occupy all that space. What? To keep myself small and not be showy or loud or the center of attention. That was modeled for me, but not really taught. I guess I internalized it to the point that I wasn't allowed to physically occupy the space that my body was taking up. I still haven't fully untangled that one. The aforementioned Curry, my next-door neighbor growing up, writes, My view is that once it's clear that a marriage is no longer salvageable, it's best for everyone, the children and the parents, to separate and ultimately divorce. Although the divorce that my parents went through was not good, even as far as divorces go, ultimately everyone was far happier once it was done. I had better quality time with my dad and better quality time with my mom once they separated. One mistake they both made was talking negatively about the other in front of me and my brother. This is incredibly damaging and unhealthy. As far as I'm concerned, the most important thing a couple with children that is separating can do is protect their children. Do not indulge in saying anything negative about the other, no matter what. Unfortunately, my children's mother and I ended up divorcing as well. I generally think that couples should do everything possible to salvage a marriage with or without children, However, in my particular situation, the relationship became unsalvageable. The good news is my divorce was conducted in a completely respectful and collaborative manner. Our children witnessed minimal arguments and other negativity. This takes effort. We continue to celebrate Christmas mornings and other major events such as birthdays and graduations together. It works well. My daughters are happy, thriving, and well-adjusted. I recognize that this is not a common or the usual situation. I do firmly believe that divorce can be done with minimal impact on the children if both parties put the kids' interests first and act with some wisdom and temperance. It's worth noting that while I identify as a Christian and share most, if not all, of the Christian values, I'm not a literal Christian. This is relevant because I don't share the same views as many Christians do surrounding the sanctity of marriage. My view is if a relationship is toxic and unhealthy... And once everything that can reasonably be done to try to save the relationship has been attempted, it's time to move on, kids or otherwise. Significantly more effort should be put into saving a relationship if kids are involved, but staying in an unhealthy relationship just for the kids is generally, but not always, a mistake. Curry continues, addressing getting a divorce if there aren't any kids. If there are no children involved and the relationship is not complicated with deep family, business, and financial ties, And if the couple is genuinely unhappy and both feel moving on makes sense, I see no reason to drag out an unhappy relationship. For me, this is a clear-cut situation where getting a divorce and moving on quickly and efficiently makes sense. does not need to be ugly or complicated. If the marriage is more long-term, say over a decade, and there are deep family and or business and financial ties, obviously more effort and thought should be given to the impact of the divorce. Therefore, it would make more sense to put more effort into salvaging the marriage and being extra cautious and thoughtful before separating. A divorce like that is going to cost more emotionally and financially. There's going to be more long-term impact and a longer recovery period for both. Be careful and thoughtful. Currie returns to the scenario of divorce with kids by writing, And of course, if kids are involved, especially preteen kids, every possible effort should be made to salvage the marriage. Both parties should be willing to compromise a lot and should do everything possible to work out a solution. There's no denying the fact that raising kids when separated and ultimately divorced is far more difficult and far more costly in every way. Don't take this lightly. Both parties should be prepared to forgive quite a bit, and to try and make it work before taking the drastic step of divorcing with young children in the picture. What happens with my songs is I write them, and maybe even record them, or play them live once or twice, and then I either keep them around or forget all about them. I forgot all about this one, not thinking it was a particularly good or memorable song, only to stumble across it while looking through old tapes looking for other things for previous seasons of the podcast. I had to listen to a fuzzy old recording and write down the lyrics because I wasn't 100% on most of them. I do remember I've been listening to a lot of Bob Dylan's Highway 61 driving in my car to work when I wrote this one and maybe it shows a bit. something to listen to the recording now, now that I'm wasting my own middle age on misdirected rage. The thing about teens and young 20s, you see, is is they can 100% correctly label every single thing any adult in their vicinity is screwing up, but they have zero idea what to do instead or how hard it is to be an adult decade in, decade out. So I retaught myself this old song from way back when I was in my early 20s, cut out a verse and chorus I didn't think it really needed too badly, and recorded a bed track of it at the end of a long day to send to heaven for drums, with bass guitar and layered vocal harmonies and was exhausted. It had fanciness with the vocals and stair-step Beatles-influenced harmony vocals for the reference to farts and
1: everything. Keeps the car filled up with gas and the living room with foam.
0: Evan emailed right back and politely pointed out that there was a timing irregularity, with one of the verses starting a couple of bars earlier or later than the other ones. I forget which. And that's not a problem if you're just singing and playing the guitar by yourself, but it throws the band off if it's a full arrangement thing, like we were doing, and it sounds weird in a recording with all of the instruments. So, surly, tired, and frustrated... I despaired of pro away the problem and grouchily sat down to re-record it before bed that evening, being more careful and sending Evan a stripped-down version with just voice and guitar on the one mic for him to use. Didn't use a second mic, didn't use a guitar pick, let the click track leak out of the headphones and pick up in the vocal mic, just wanting to get Evan something so he could work on it. And I lacked the emotional energy, to throw in as much performance, as much snark and sass and show-offery as before, but soon realized that the tired, quiet, gentle, simple take was in many ways better for the song. So that's what I sent to Evan. He's not gonna listen, he says
1: you're not making sense Follow him around and talk while he pretends
0: he's dense. Evan promptly emailed me back some drums that were a bit more aggressive than I thought would match what I'd done. But I tried it and decided I wanted to work with them to juxtapose mellow vocals and guitar with drums and bass kicking them along a bit. They reflect my role in things back then, with my mom in that day. Nudge, nudge, nudge. I tried adding the fart harmonies back in and did them a bit differently, a bit more laid back. So he keeps the car filled up with
1: gas in the living room with farts. That's what a marriage is to him.
0: I thought they worked, though throughout the recording of this song I was stuck the whole time in that state of thinking every single thing I did sounded terrible. This version of the fart vocals was less silly, for one thing, and more tender, a song sung affectionately to my mother with a bit more gentleness and patience with her blocked life progress rather than being quite so adolescently mocking and sassy. I usually want to take my songs to a more aggressive and fast place than I can quite pull off because I think they're boring. But when I play songs that are quiet and gentle and soft and slow, that's when I do my best. But no one wants every song to be that kind of a song. When I was in a band, for instance, I soon realized that the band and audience wanted maybe one or at most two slow songs per set, with a nice brisk one right before and after it to keep the party rolling. So I recorded all of the parts, which all sounded terrible to me. I recorded them blind, hoping that they would add up to something once they were put together. And the song ended up being one of those ones that wanted to remain simple and run the risk of being boring. It's a very simple, early song of mine that is quite repetitive and has clumsy, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, Neil Young-style rhymes in the words. So I tried to add subtle touches to it. No overt production tricks jumping out at you much. No crunchy electric guitars crashing in on the chorus. I didn't allow Evan any showy drum fills. So I did a quiet shaker. Two acoustic guitars. with two Nashville-strung guitars, a moody bass line, simple but a bit out of my comfort zone, I had to rest a bit between takes while doing those guitar parts, as my nerve-damaged hand wasn't happy with all the guitaring I was putting it through. I sang backing harmonies, including falsetto harmonies, until my voice was sounding a bit strained.
1: And when will you stop? But
0: I went ahead and sang the lead vocal before bed, with a torn-up, tired-sounding voice, breaking up a bit as I sang loudly.
1: Not just Magazine!
0: Less accuracy, more humanity. Then I tried plugging in that electric piano I picked up used last summer. I don't normally play piano nowadays, but when I do, I like to really thump the left-hand lower octaves to try and get that bitch-slapped low-end piano, like on later Johnny Cash albums, even though I'm only playing an electric piano. everything all set up to play keyboard anyway, I thought I might as well put down some quiet organ. I'm always reluctant to layer too many keyboard patches and pads in, lest my stuff sound like it was made on a computer all by myself, which it was, apart from Evan emailing me those digital drums, But I'm trying to make it sound more spontaneous and rougher and less polished than that.
1: He's not gonna listen. He says, Yo, not making sense. Follow him around and talk while he gets prepared. Take offense.
0: I said you two could be happy,
1: but you need a dance. The only thing your life can use is what your soul invents. What's on? Done. So it keeps the car filled up with gas in the living room with thoughts That's what a marriage is to him The rest can fall apart Your are wasting Middle Age on me. your own mind each day What would be best Was moving on for you to do once things are off your chest You've got such lovely wings unspread It's time Fly the nest Wait Yeah. Oh.